0: The presidential election in the US revealed deep divisions across political and ideological lines. Many are now asking, what will it take to bring the country together? The Civil Society Fellowship, a partnership of the Anti-Defamation League, or the ADL, and the Aspen Institute's Global Leadership Network, or the AGLN, answers that question by engaging the next generation of community and civic leaders, activists, and problem solvers across these divisions on AGLN's new Value of Leadership Podcast. In this episode, two fellows in the Civil Society Fellowship, Jennifer Sarver, founder of Sarver Strategies in Austin, Texas, and Isaiah Oliver, president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Greater Flint in Michigan, talk about what it's going to take to heal the country. Jennifer and Isaiah reflect on discovering their commonalities, and how lessons from their experience could be a model for how other Americans can find common truth. Could the key be to infuse wonder when we enter into these deeply divided spaces? Let's get right into it. I
1: want to ask you each to introduce yourselves. And if you could give a two-minute life story, I know that's unfair to ask, but a kind of highlight version of who you are, that would go a long way for them. getting us started. Jen, let's start with you.
2: Thanks so much, Nikki. I am delighted to be here and have this conversation with you and with Isaiah. My life story is one of a wonderful family upbringing with a mom who's an educator and a dad who's a minister and I have been surrounded by family and love my whole life. Um, later on, I, I realized that I, after I grew up, we didn't have any money, but I was rich in love and opportunity and really always told I could do anything I wanted. You know, recently told my dad, you know, when you told me I was a kid and I could do anything I wanted, I believed you, you know, and so that the, those words of affirmation and support were so important to me. I grew up around public service and always have thought public service was a really important thing to strive toward to serve other people, to put others before yourself. And so that's kind of been the focus of a lot of my life. I'm a communicator by trade. I learned early on that if I could talk and write and people would pay me to do those things, it was a good career. And so I had, was able to kind of join my love of public service and communications into a career where I've served. In Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. I've served in the Bush administration. I've worked in the private sector. I've worked in the nonprofit sector. I've worked in academia. And now I'm an entrepreneur where I get to help clients build and tell their stories. And, you know, my kind of core values and the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about are, are civility. I have kind of three pillars of my philanthropic work, which are civic engagement, helping young people find their passion and, and really um, getting more women involved in the political process. So I spent a lot of time in those three areas and I'm just privileged to work with a lot of organizations that lift people up and encourage them and help them find their voice. And so for me being a part of the civil society fellowship is a great way to continue my own public service journey, to continue listening and learning to people that are different than I am, that have different perspectives and backgrounds than I do. And gosh, what our world would look like if
1: we did a lot more of that. Thanks, Jen. Isaiah. Yeah,
3: thank you, Jen. And much like Jen, my journey has has led to this place where I'm, I'm with this mosaic of amazing diverse perspectives, both sharpening and, and being sharpened by those perspectives. And so I'm, I'm excited about and continue to be amazed by the Civil Society Fellowship and the work that is happening all across our country, quite frankly, and that is impacting the work that I'm doing right in Flint, Michigan, where I'm from. More specifically born and raised in North Flint, which is cold for a lot of things. It's cold for being black, it's cold for being poor, It's cold for seeing Flint's violence outside your bedroom window and not on the six o'clock news. It's cold for knowing those perpetrators of violent crimes, going to school with them, sometimes going to church with them. It's where I would say my core values were solidified, being raised by a single mom on the north side of Flint, trying to figure out how to navigate a world while also putting blinders on her son who was growing up in an environment that she she wanted to influence him, but she didn't want him to succumb to. And so that's who I am. Every day, I wake up every day and go to sleep every night leading an organization focused on engaging people in the world of philanthropy, which for us is giving time and talent and treasure, financial resources to make the community you love, and in this case, Flint and Genesee County for me, a better place to live in and work in and contribute to. And as a result of that work, I have the opportunity to engage with people on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the political spectrum, on all ends of the economic spectrum, and I get to serve as a bridge. An understanding of our common humanity, an understanding of the hierarchy of human value that exists in our communities that continues to impact the way we engage with one another. I would say I'm blessed to serve in that role. I acknowledge the privilege of being in the space and serving in philanthropy, while i also acknowledge many or the history of philanthropy and those who actually have the additional resources, time, talent, and treasure, to give to make community better. And the privilege that it is to be in that space and the bodies and the people that were exploited to allow the opportunity for folks to be in that space. And so it is one of those things that I toil with quite a bit. And I would tell you my life story, that of being lucky, I describe it as lucky. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And Mm -hmm. I think you can control the preparation. And my mom did a great job of positioning me to control the prep, but I got lucky because I couldn't control the opportunities. And that intersection for me is magic or luck and I'm, I'm counting the days and the privileges of being at that intersection and being intentional about what I do with the luck that I have. And so that said, that's Isaiah. Again, Flint, Michigan, born and raised on the playgrounds
1: where I spend most of my days. Who knew we'd get some rhyming into this podcast? <laughs> Thank you both for those you know, quick insights into your, your lives and your upbringing. You know, we've just spent the last week together you all as part of our inaugural class called Mission Redemption, the Civil Society Fellowship. And one of the readings that we spent some time with was Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address. And uh, what struck me from that conversation was how you all really got connected with this notion of a North Star and asked each other if, if there is such a thing as a shared North Star. I wonder if you just think about the two of you. What do you have in common? What do you see as shared values or things that you may may both look to? I think
2: that you know a North star that Isaiah and I both share is is a love of people like we are both people people people. <laughs> we enjoy being around others I think we get energy from other people and both want to hear and genuinely listen to and learn from other perspectives, right? I know that a lot of times we're in spaces where people say they wanna hear from different voices, but they really just wanna do it so they can sharpen their own argument. And and Isaiah and I have had a lot of offline conversations where like, let's dig into that a little bit more. Let me me poke back at something you said, because I wanna interrogate it a little bit and I wanna understand it more because I truly wanna understand it. It doesn't mean you're gonna necessarily change my perspective on an issue, but I want to understand where you're coming from. And I will say that I've had many occasions since the beginning of this fellowship a year ago where I'd say, you know, we have confidentiality in the room, right? So we don't share secrets, but I'll say, there's a guy that I interact with and, and here's about it, a little bit of his story and his perspective. And it makes me think differently. And I think that's what we get out of it is thinking differently and making it, taking that pause when we hear a story to try to understand well, tell me more about that. And I think that Isaiah and I both appreciate the opportunity to do that. And we like to dig in a little bit deeper and we really enjoy people. Those are, I, I think those are our shared values. Isaiah, what do you think?
3: One, I agree with you, but I also think even at a, at a deeper level, we started talking about North Stars. I think we both agree that civility is paramount. We Absolutely. both agree that decency is paramount. We both agree that humanity is paramount. We, I think we both agree that equal Opportunity is important. I think we both agree that there have been barriers that have to be addressed to folks achieving their full purpose in life, their full um, commitment to not only their families or their states, but to this country. I think we both agree on that. And I think that was what was interesting about the Eisenhower piece. Many people agreed with the North Star. But how we got there was the place where we kind of started to unravel. That's the place where we tend to disagree. Or I would say that's the place where we should be moved to wonder. Mm -hmm. I wonder why this person thinks this way. I wonder why this person sees things this way. We're not always questioning the core values. We're questioning the role there. It's almost like when I start thinking about boards of trustees and their roles different than the CEO or president, like the board decides where you're going. And it's the president and CEO's job to get you there. And I think in this case, we all are starting to agree that we need to move to a country that's more just, more open to opportunities for individuals. But how we get there and whose responsibility it is, is where we begin to unravel.
2: And I love that you said that word wonder. I have this card right in front of me. It's a, an actual bookmark that says, invite wonder. Right? And I, I kind of keep it in front of me because I always want to just stop. And, and before I respond or react, I want to say, like, OK, I'm to be curious, be intellectually curious, be emotionally curious and try to understand. And so I agree, Isaiah, we have this idea like we want to go toward this direction. I think where there are differences are who the right actors are, who is responsible for making the change to get us there. Right. And so from a from traditional perspective, right? I come up from, from a conservative tradition, which is less government more free market, more NGOs, more personal responsibility, accountability. And so I think that the combination of the actors involved in making the change is where we need to have some conversations. Right. And I think it's like some conservatives will say no government, some liberal perspectives, it's all government. And the reality is always somewhere kind of in between two extremes. That's where I think that the conversation needs to head around. Some of the changes we want to see is what which which actors are responsible for making the change and how do we move forward around that conversation?
1: So knowing that there's a lot of division in our country now, you know, probably more than we can ever recall, you all mentioned the importance of civility. How how do you get to civility?
2: For me, civility and the way that I want to treat people is very much rooted in my faith tradition, which is a Christian faith tradition, which is how Would Jesus want me to treat people, right? So literally my pastor on Sunday said, when you look at the other and you see somebody who you disagree with vehemently, remember that Jesus died for them too, right? And if if you happen to have that Christian faith tradition and believe that, that's a pretty startling statement, right? So it doesn't matter what your faith tradition is. How do we treat people equally? How do we treat people in a way that we want to be treated, that golden rule? And that for me is, is a North star for me, right? Like I want to treat people with dignity and respect and I want to model that. And I put that on, you know, like my Twitter bio, right? <laughs> Promoting civility one tweet at a time. Cause I want to have a mental reminder of before I send something snarky out, before I respond, I want to gut check and say, how am I going to feel about this in a day or two days? And if somebody else sees this, what are they going to think about it? Am I treating people the way I want to be treated?
3: Yeah, and I would say my idea of civility, probably, I, I agree with much of what Jen said, about it. I think lived experience plays a, a role here. And in some cases, not even lived experience. in, in many cases, it's an acknowledgement of the history of my people, the history of African Americans in this country. And I want to model civility to show that treating people with dignity and respect can actually, we can build upon that to make for a better a better country. And I know for sure, not only me, not only my family, but the people that I feel like I represent haven't benefited from that civility, and it's a way of modeling, a new way of being. I mean, even when we started having these conversations about truth and reconciliation, I, I think the idea of reconciliation is built on a false premise, that we were ever all together at one point. I think it's more truth than transformation, right? Truth and really co-creating what the future looks like, because I don't think we've ever lived in a country where civility was paramount. And we treated people with dignity and respect, whether that come from our faith or our family traditions or our culture. I don't think we've ever lived in that space before. So I'm attempting through civility to model something that I have not seen reciprocated for any length of time that has benefited all people in this country.
1: So let's stay there for a minute. How do we even get to a common baseline of truth to even begin to reconcile?
3: So I think there there are certain things, I think perceptions of facts is one thing that we would have to wrestle with different, but I think there are a set of facts around the racial history of this country that we can all wrestle with as truth, as documented truths. Now, obviously there are perceptions of that history that people may take different ways, but I think there is documented history, 401 years of exploitation of black bodies. We can talk about that in fact, and acknowledging that is an important path forward to the civility that we want to model in this country, but not acknowledging it and glazing over it, I think puts us at a disposition because not acknowledging it does not allow certain people to be acknowledged for those things that they haven't been able to take advantage of. And I hope I said that appropriately.
2: Yeah, I think this is, it's an interesting conversation. It's obviously a very challenging one, right? I think one of our fellows said last week, this year has been the year of the great white awakening, right? And I, I thought that was such an interesting phrase that she used because it feels like, We've had this really interesting moment in our country where we're having this ongoing racial dialogue, which many people have been having for a really long time, right? But it feels like more people have been brought into the conversation than ever before. And we're catalyzed by a violent action, a series of violent actions. And so you have people like me who, who've always wanted to be a, a, a builder and a convener and a, a bridge builder, but don't always have um, the historical facts and knowledge. So to, to get to that question of truth, so to start to understand some of the systemic issues around our country's history, right? So when you talk about redlining and you talk about people not having access to the GI Bill and you talk about the things that changed communities and, and in many ways detrimental changes to communities that have ramifications today. And I think when people start to understand some of that history, they can start to see and understand what systemic racism. is. Because I will say that I have conversations with people who are like, well, you know, that happened back then. You know, it doesn't happen anymore. Why do we, why do we still talk about it? And you have to still talk about it because we still live with the results of it. And yes, some of it still happens today. A, a, a twist I would like to add into the conversation, which I don't think we talk about enough, and I'm wrestling with the right way to talk about this, is how do you also celebrate Black success, right? We, we have had a Black president. We will have a Black vice president, right? So a, a Black a male and a Black female before we'll have a white female in the White House. And so that, that, I feel like we should celebrate that success. And sometimes it gets lost in the conversation that there there are moments of success. There are things we should highlight while also attempting to tackle and tear down these barriers and walls. And I think that when we fail to acknowledge some progress, because there has been progress, that's where I feel like some people get left behind in the conversations. You're not even acknowledging progress. why, Why should I have this conversation with Let's say in the
3: first first few pages of where do we go in the Martin Luther King, where do we go from here speech? Or in the first 15 minutes, if you were listening to it of that speech, he acknowledged the progress of the time. This is how far we've come in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, we couldn't do this. 10 years ago, we couldn't do that. But then he concluded at least that part of his speech with we can't get comfortable because what kind of community continues to perpetuate the disparities with 40 million people living in poverty? Right. And he started to talk about the intersectionality or the intersections of economy and war and racism and how those things play off one another. And I think we're at the same place now. We can talk about the disparities in the numbers related to COVID for black and brown people. Right. And we can start talking about the many things that we did over the last eight months to close those disparities. But post-COVID, we're going to have to have some conversation about who's responsible for guiding and leading as we continue to move forward. And so I think that's where when we start talking about the North Star being different than the the process by which we get there, when we start talking about big government or little government, GI Bill, post-war recoveries, you got to start talking about how government created billionaires, right? Government contracts helped to create billionaires, and those billionaires weren't black and brown. If we're not having conversations about how those things play out and how they continue to perpetuate stereotypes and perpetuate disparities, and if we don't include the conversation about big government versus little government or conservative values in that conversation and how a person like me would say, okay, big government is responsible because big government helped to create some of the disparities, and then how someone on the opposite side of the aisle might say, you know what? Big government can exist because it doesn't allow for people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and develop their own skill sets. And actually, we get to see the, <laughs> we get to see the differences in the outcomes for folks who can take advantage of the American dream, whatever that is, and where we're going as a country. I think the big government conversation becomes a turnoff if you're not invited to wonder why people see that as a as a strength or a
1: weakness. So let's let's keep going there. I want to ask you each to imagine you're in conversation with someone you know in your community who's not on the same page with you about truth who might not be ready to say yeah let's celebrate you know Kamala or Barack someone who who you, you may need to help
2: you know i think in conversations with people who aren't ready to t- kind of dive deep into some of these conversations this is where I get at to, we need to listen to our conservative friends too, right? Because I, I do feel a lot of times it's like, well, we just need to bring all these conservatives along with us. Like we, we've got the viewpoint, we've got the perspective, just, just bring them along. And like, we need to hear what their concerns are too. And maybe we can refute some of those concerns with facts. But if they're going to say, I don't believe the systemic racism that exists, right? They're they're living in an alternate reality, right? And at some point, you have to pick your battles, right? Like in a political campaign, my 30% that are with me, my 30% that are against me, I got to go after the folks in the middle. And so one, of, one, one thing after our, all of our seminar last week in our town hall, I started thinking about is what happens when you don't get all the people to go along with you? Because I think we all are grounded in reality enough to recognize you're never going to get everybody to buy into this, right? So at what point have we got enough people to buy in that we can agree to move forward? as if we're only just fighting to make sure that everybody agrees with us so we can move forward collectively as a nation i don't think we're going to get there and so and i think that people like me who want to be a part of the conversation to move forward you know i'm always like this this you've called us i think restless restless innovators what's the term
1: you use restless problem solvers
2: restless problem solvers yeah and i i have to learn to stop and pause and be like i can't solve the problem we have to bring more people along we have to understand it a little better before we move forward I worry a little bit that we're going to get stuck and people are going to get frustrated because not enough people are going to want to move forward. And so that's one of the the conversations that I want to have is like, let's go after the swing voters. right? Let's go after those folks in the middle that just need a little bit more information that need to have a conversation because there's going to be people that will not come along with us. And we have to acknowledge that and and move forward in the absence of having 100 percent
3: participation. I say I think they're the. There are some foundational touchstones that we have to not only acknowledge, but agree upon before engaging in these deep discussions that are going to tug at us. One of those things I think is no fixing. Every one of us is on our own discovery, this discovery of our own truths. We're committed to listening to our own inner teacher, and we're on this journey of our own. And when we're doing that, we have to, we have to listen. We have to listen deeply. We have to listen to the words beneath the feelings, beneath the reactions. We have to identify our own assumptions as we're engaging in these conversations with individuals. Other people, different people, they have this undergirding of their worldview that impacts their decision-making and their actions. And so when we enter into conversations with folks and we identify our own assumptions, we also have to be clear to, I guess I would say when things get difficult, turn to wonder, again, I wonder why this person is thinking this. I wonder what brought this person to this space. And then assume in our responses to them that the no fixing rule is important. Like our job is not to fix or correct or make better another person. We're all on our own individual journeys to understand the world around us better. And this engagement with Jen, this engagement with Nikki is going to make me a better person and position me better to respond to the changing needs in my local community maybe at the state level and maybe even nationally, but this journey that I'm on is my own. And so when we start to enter into the conversation from that perspective, this idea of changing people, this idea of making them better after they engage with us, isn't the focus. The focus becomes internal. I want to be a better person coming out of this conversation with Jen. And so I'm not in it to fix her. I'm in it to make sure I'm correcting those things in myself. It makes for less of a debate.
2: I think that confirmation bias is one of our biggest challenges, right? Which means I need to make sure that I'm not only listening to and spending time with and reading information that agrees with me. And so few people actively seek out different and disparate viewpoints and they surround themselves with the comfort of people that agree with them, whatever that perspective is, because it's not, it's easier. And frankly, it's easier to be around people that agree with you. Now, if you're somebody like, like Isaiah or I or probably most of the people in the fellowship, we actually enjoy the give and take of a diverse community and we want to be sharpened and challenged. That's not the norm. I mean, we see people create these echo chambers on social media and in what they read and what they watch and who they listen to. That's dangerous, right? Because you just go down that rabbit hole of agreement and your views can get more and more extreme. And I would argue on, on either side of a political spectrum, this happens. And so we have to stop and say, listen, I need to seek out diverse input so that my decision-making process can be better, so that I can challenge my own assumptions, so that I can take that time to stop and do that job of wondering and listening and being curious because I don't need to be too curious about somebody who's exactly like me because I, I know the blueprint,
3: right? Nikki, could you imagine a world you had the ability to speak your truth, saying what's on your heart, trusting that your voice will be heard and your contribution respected using I statements. You had the, the opportunity to do that. But then you also had the ability to suspend judgment and set aside your own judgments. How much further we get along in those conversations. I've spoken my truth. I have spoken my heart. I appreciate that it is going to be respected. I used I statements when, when speaking my truth. And then I suspended judgment when the conversation comes back to me as people are exploring the truth that I put on the table. And if we can continue to do that and reciprocate that for one another, how far we can get in better understanding not only the history of this country, our own individual personal histories, but how we co-create a future with one another based off of the information that we've pulled from those conversations.
0: To listen to the second part of this episode, Subscribe to the Value of Leadership podcast from the Aspen Global Leadership Network, or AGLN. Part two focuses on how exercising grace and leveraging one's individual power at any level can aid in reconciliation to create a better country for all Americans. To learn more about the Aspen Global Leadership Network, follow at AspenAGLN on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with their work. Thank you to Nikki Irvin, Isaiah Oliver, Jennifer Sarver, Leda Tremblay, Angela Keyes, Samantha Cherry, Bill Havoliana, Colby Hartberg, Sarah Koenig, and Christina Sicconi. Thanks for listening.